Happy Vintage family. Uh, we are, like we said, in the new space, and I wish you could see what I see, which is a work, a work room, a work zone, boxes and ladders and stuff. But uh, we just decided in the midst of this, we're going to start using this space and trying to get settled into where we're going. And we're excited to be able to gather together, and we're not very far off, but wanted to just stay the course with where we're at in Scripture. So we're going to dive into James chapter 2. I wanted to highlight just your faithfulness and thanking you for staying faithful and giving. And obviously, uh, we really didn't predict that it was going to be this kind of time pocket break in between when we were gathering and when we were able to gather again. But he is faithful, and we're going to see it through, and we're excited for that chance when we get together and, and can be in this space and uh, worship together. I, I miss that, and I love what Jonathan and Hannah were able to do um, just with, with this worship time, but we're all, all the team, worship team, internal team, everybody's just, we can't wait till the time when we get together. Let's dive into James chapter 2. Uh, I want to pick back up in verse 13. James will say, dear brothers and sisters, what is the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? That kind of faith can't save anyone. So in chapter 2, we, we left off with James challenging his readers to follow Jesus in every aspect of the scriptures. His end cap from our last teaching dealt with mercy and how really the litmus test of our heart transformation before Jesus is revealed in the way we give mercy to others. That's an incredibly sobering reality. And building on that idea, James will deal with something that I think is a very real concern for our day today. Understanding what real faith in Jesus has to look like. There are so many people in our culture right now that will say, I'm a Christian or I believe in God. And James is going to dig into these statements and begin to teach that our faith, in order to really be accurately validated, must have some very important components. I think for many of us, that statement in and of itself flies in the face of what we believe. We're not fans of being told what we must do. For some, this passage might even draw us back into maybe legalistic concerns or fears where we could feel the need to refute what James is saying. I think that's a terrible error. I understand the cry for grace, but I just think grace has been so misunderstood in our day and in our time. Legalism is not the point of this passage. That's not what James is getting at. In fact, I think to view this passage as legalistic is to really have a poor understanding of what legalism is. Legalism is not saying there are standards and things we must do and uphold in the kingdom. Legalism is an adherence to a set of external rules and regulations as the salvation mechanism for your soul. Christianity or the following of the way of Jesus is really an adherence to a lifestyle because we've made a choice to follow the one who saved us. And the difference is vital. And in this juxtaposition, I'd love to highlight something that I think is very important, that grace, or this incredible forgiveness of our sin, it doesn't grant us a license to let go of the life of Christ as our pursuit. It doesn't make it okay to say, yes, yeah, sorry, I'm a failure, no big deal. For James, the passion is that we are continuing to pursue Jesus in all things. And this is where so many fail, and this is also where I think James will dig in here. There are three words I want to highlight in verse 13. Faith, 
actions, and save. This word faith here, where he says, dear brothers and sisters, what is the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? That kind of faith can't save anyone. So this word faith here means belief or conviction. It's something we're, we're kind of anchoring into saying, this is what I believe, this is what I'm standing on. So what is the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? This, this, this word action here is work or effort. Really, in the Greek, the word is toil. And he goes on to say, that kind of faith can't save anyone. The word save here is to deliver or protect. It's actually the Greek word sozo, which is this holistic work that that the kingdom does in us. So we put all these together, we realize that, indeed, James is challenging this idea of a purely mental pursuit of Jesus. What do I mean? I would love to just draw a line and say, Here's what I think James is saying. If you say you believe in Jesus, I better be able to see it in your life. And he's teaching that that pursuit of Jesus must be active. Perhaps it's easier to say this. He's drawing a line that says there are no people in the kingdom that are allowed to say I'm a believer of Jesus, but I don't follow his way. In fact, I think James would say if, if faith is not actively lived, there's actually an open door for the enemy to erode the faith that we have. So if we're not putting it into action, we're leaving the door open for him to erode it. That's key for me in understanding this passage. Because it tells me that actively living in the kingdom protects me and, and is going to increase and build my trust in Jesus. So if, if I don't actively live into my faith and pursue Jesus with the actions of my life, There's a natural erosion that comes to my faith. But when I do the opposite and I step into those works, there's a building up of my faith. Maybe just for us, we understand it this way. When I let my faith become mental, there's a very real erosion to my strength. I think a lot of our culture saw that happen in this whole COVID season. We got so out of our our norm and out of our our seasons of life, that for some, faith just became this sidebar idea, and we saw an erosion to core strength. And I love what James is challenging here, is that when our faith is active, it builds us up. So the question that James is really dealing with, or the idea, is faith in action. So what does it look like to James? He will go on and say, suppose... You see a brother or sister who needs food or clothing, and you say, well, goodbye, God bless you, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, it isn't enough just to have faith. Faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. Now, some people may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, This is James, and here's what he says. I say, I can't see your faith if you don't have good deeds, but I'll show you my faith through my good deeds. And he goes on and says, do you still think it is enough just to believe that there's one God? Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in fear. Don't be foolish. When will you ever learn that faith that does not result in good good deeds is useless? There's some word phrases that jump out here. I think they help us understand what James is really getting at. 
We need to look at all the possible aspects of how these phrases could be applied. It would be really easy to just lean into the idea of giving food, giving clothing, meeting really basic needs. But I think these provisions that we're to release to people when we see them are bigger than that. What happens if we look at it as something we could release in the spiritual realm, in the emotional realm, in the physical realm? When he says, when you see someone in need, the idea here is to be attentive and responsive to the condition of the world around you. And I'd love to suggest that it's just far more than food and clothing. Does it include basic needs like that? Sure. But I actually think it's, it's so much bigger that we should understand it as an attitude we are to walk in. What does it look like for you and I to walk in an attitude that says the rest of the world around me is mine to minister to. When I see a need, if I can meet it, I'm going to meet it. So maybe I encounter someone who's just really sad. And what they need is kindness. They need compassion. They need someone to sit with them. And you might say, well, I'm not a compassionate person. James would say, if you have within you the ability to meet it, you should meet it. Okay? We can't say I'm not a compassionate person because we have the nature of Christ in us. So we have to be willing. That's really what James is getting at is this willingness to release it. What James is highlighting here in the way he lays this out is that the need was known, acknowledged, but yet ignored. I just think that teaches me that we are to meet needs that we see. And it's so easy in our culture to kind of look the other way, to let go of that knowledge and almost give ourselves a pass to say, it's not my responsibility. And James will go on and says, if you don't give that person, this word give here, it means literally to release what is needed. And the idea implies that ability to meet the need. I think perhaps we look away from need instead of looking at our ability to meet it. I, that I was deeply challenged by that idea reading this passage. When I encounter a need, my first response should be to look inside myself and say, can I meet it? Not do I want to, but can I? If I can't meet it, it's okay to say, I, w- I will do what I can, but I, I can't meet that need. But I think we would all be hard-pressed if we looked at this as spiritual, emotional, and physical needs. If we find somebody who's in a, an emotional condition where they just need compassion, we can all do that. Just some of us don't want to. Sometimes we might not be able to meet the physical need, and that's okay. Sometimes the spiritual need might be beyond what we know how to deal with. That's fine. But what James is dealing with here is this incredible attitude we are to live with, which is to be willing to meet what we can. So I just think we should apply it way beyond the scope of food and clothing. And we need to begin to understand how to minister to the world around us. I think about this passage and I think about home life. What's it look like just in our home life? If we get up every morning and we look around our household and and in our hearts we say, I'm here to meet needs. Jesus will, will give this conversation elsewhere in the gospel where he basically says the son of man came to serve, not be served. And this is what he's talking about. I, maybe I can put it in a paraphrase. Jesus basically said this. I get, out of the bed, I get out of bed in the morning and here's my thought. Who can I minister to? Who can I love? Who can I serve? What can I do to make a difference in their life? Versus the way we so often in our culture, and we all do this and we all struggle with this. What can they do for me? 
And James will ask this question, what good does that do? If you see a need and you acknowledge a need and you ignore a need, what good does that do? The word good here means use or profitability, and it gives us an understanding of what he's really aiming at, making a positive difference in the lives of others. That, for me, is an incredibly challenging idea. If I understand my responsibility is to live with this lens that says, I'm actually, I've been put on this earth, I've been given the breath of God, I walk, I talk, I live to make a positive difference in the lives of others. That puts a ton of responsibility on me. So James will cap all of this with a challenge to basically put your actions where your faith is. He actually goes so far as to say, if you don't do that, your faith is dead and useless. If I'm not willing to put my faith into action, it's dead and it's useless. And I think that reveals something about the heart, just the heart of God. That he wants his heart in us to be expressed into humanity. He wants to, to love people through us. It also tells me something about how faith grows and dies. When it's exercised, it grows. When we give it away to people, our faith grows. And when we don't, it kind of dies. If we go back to our Colossians teaching, if you remember back to a few months ago when we were in Colossians, and there was just this, this dominant phrase that came out in the book of Colossians, and that was to put on the divine nature, to really have that willingness to put Jesus on like a coat and make the choice to say, I'm going to act like, be like, give away my life like him. That's the challenge Paul was giving us, and I, I think that's precisely what James is saying here. That our belief in Jesus, catch this please, our belief in Jesus must become a lifestyle. He must be displayed in the way we act towards others. We're no longer just being careful not to sin. We're actively participating in his plan to engage the world around us. So James is going to end this passage in chapter 2 with a couple of stories from the Old Testament. They're Abraham and Rahab. And I think they each highlight an important aspect of, of this real faith that he's calling the church to. In the Abraham story, James will say this, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was declared right with God because of what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? And you might remember the story that Abraham takes his son Isaac because the Lord says, come sacrifice your son. And Abraham has this deep yearning in his heart because it's his only son. And his yearning is, there's no way that this God that I know is really going to want me to kill my son. But I do trust him enough that if he does, I'm going to follow it through because I, I know he's good. And he, and he will say to his, to his attendants and his staff that's with him, the boy and I will return. So there's this just deep belief in the character of God. But James will say this. You see that Abraham was trusting God so much that he was willing to do whatever God told him to do. And his faith was made complete by what he did, by his actions. And it so happened, just as the scriptures say, that Abraham believed God, so God declared him to be righteous. He was even called the friend of God. James will go on. So you see, we, he brings it back to all of us, are made right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. So Abraham's highlighted here because, I would say it this way, a truly living faith has to be fueled by a direct interaction with the king. 
His voice becomes the guide for life, and obedience to that voice is going to lead us into these faith actions. But for me, I think there's even more than that here. I think what James is teaching is, is, is a bigger principle. He's teaching that believing God requires hearing God. So often in our culture, so many, I, I would say so many strains of Christianity would love to teach that you could just kind of follow what the scriptures say. It's a very disconnected relationship. If I just do what the scriptures say, then I'm a good believer. And, and James is saying, now there's, it has to be fueled by an interaction with the king. His voice has to be in your life. And I love what he ends it with. He was even called the friend of God. Because what James is saying here is that friendship with God is only possible through obedience to the voice of God. So for any of you, like me, that say, I want to I build a friendship with God. I don't want to just be a believer that shows up at church once in a while. I want to be that person that has an intimate relationship where we become friends. It's rooted in obedience to his voice, to the things that he says to do. And those things can be scripture, that's important, but also can just be his whisper. Maybe you're driving down the road and you see somebody, let's use an easy, let's, let's pick the low-hanging fruit. There's somebody on the side of the road that's asking for a resource. And you, you feel that thing where the Holy Spirit just says, hey, I want you to meet it. Here's, do me a favor, don't try to justify why you shouldn't. Just take the risk, go, all right, Lord, happy to do it. And meet it. Because that obedience fuels something in you. It grows your faith, but it also causes you to be a person that the Lord would say this. I can become a friend of that person because they'll pay attention to my voice, even when it doesn't make sense. That's what I see in Abraham. God was able to say something to Abraham that made absolutely no sense. Go sacrifice your son. That was so contrary to the system they were in. It was so much like the world around them and Abraham just had this gut instinct of, I know, who I, I know who I follow. I know who I believe. I can't have understood him correctly, so I'm just going to trust him. And then James will bring in Rahab. He says, Rahab, the prostitute, is another example of this. She was made right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without a spirit, so also faith is dead without good deeds. James will drop something here. Now remember, James is writing to mostly Jewish readers, so in their history, they would have understood these stories as parts of their culture. But Rahab's an interesting story. She's a woman who's a prostitute. She's living in, in immorality. And yet, we see her declare her belief in who God is. If you read the story, it's in Joshua chapter 2. She basically says to these spies, I've heard about who he is. I've heard about what he does. All of us are terrified at just the reality that he is God. So she's a believer, we could say it that way, in who God is and what he's done. Yet she's not of the people of God. She's not an Israelite. But then what we witness next is her partnering with what matters to God, working for his cause by hiding spies. And I think that moment validates her faith in him. What we see God do with her life is protect her, in fact, if we study it, King David actually comes through her lineage. What does that teach us? Our faith is an idea until it becomes an action. And those actions of partnering with him, with what matters to him, draw his grace, his mercy, and they draw more of his voice into our lives. It's like this beautiful cycle 
The more I step into what he said, the more he speaks, the more grace, the more mercy. And it's, it, I think it's intended to be this beautiful magnetic thing. The more I walk and step with him, the more he pulls me close. This entire passage in chapter 2 teaches one main thing. Belief is invalid until it changes our actions. And when we begin to do what he says to do and act how he says to act, live how he says to live, our faith takes deep root. Love you. Hope you have a fantastic week. See you later.